HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Patina Events at Brooklyn Botanic Garden, an idyllic location for weddings, corporate events, and parties of any style. Visit us at patinaevents.com. This week on Meet and 3, we get ready for Super Tuesday by looking at how food shapes elections both at home and abroad. People know that you don't order a Philly cheesesteak with Swiss cheese as John Kerry did back in the 2004 cycle. A young group of friends decided that they would put up a website which told voters which polling booths had sausages. Prime Minister David Cameron was pictured about a week after this incident eating a hot dog in a bun with a knife and fork because he was so afraid. Tune in to Meet in 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to Processing, a show about the intersection of food and grief. With your hosts, me, Zara Tangora, and my wonderful mother, Bobby, who is in Long Island, and I am at this intro alone, but I know that she is here in spirit and thinking about you all and wishing you all a wonderful week, as am I. Um, today we are doing a rebroadcast of a very special early episode, um, one of the first guests that joined us for the show, uh, who has since become a friend, I'm happy to say, Jessica Quinn. Uh, Jess is awesome. She is an incredibly talented pastry chef, which I did not know at the time through eating her food. But um, in the past year, I've had the, I don't even know, opportunity or blessing or what's the right word for what it means to eat Jess's uh, food. But um She's beyond, 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 beyond. And her and her wife, um, Trina, have an amazing pop-up that they are running, um, an Eastern European pop-up called Dacha. And you can follow them on Instagram at Dacha, D-A-C-H-A, 1946. Um, truly exceptional, beautiful, great, delicious food. Um, and heartwarming during this really cold winter. So... We wanted to just re-air this episode because Jess is such a wonderful person. We've grown really close to her, but um, also just because I think, like I said, you know, during these tough dregs of winter, especially if you're uh, joining us as an East Coast or really anywhere listener right now, there's a cold snap everywhere. But um, I don't know, there's something about the warm food that Jess and Trina make. Um, made me and Bobby really want to re-air this episode. It's beautiful. I've had a couple of people actually reach out to me recently saying they listened to this episode and really connected with it. I've actually had some experiences talking with other friends who um, whose parents are suffering from dementia and Alzheimer's. Um, and so I just felt personally as a kind of appropriate time to re-air this. And I hope that you all... Uh, either re-listen or listen to the, for the first time to Jess's beautiful, beautiful episode. Um, this is one of the most emotional episodes for me. Every time I listen to it, I really break down. Um, she's a beautiful way of talking about her story with her mom, and we so appreciate your time, Jess, and we love you. And uh, please follow Dacha if you get the opportunity to eat Jess's ama- Jess and Trina's amazing food. Um, you're really in for a treat. It's it's very very special. So we love you and uh, 
look out for each other and yourselves and be good and, and take care and hang in there. And thank you for listening. Okay. Bye. Jess Quinn. Jess brought us, I just want to mention before we get into anything else, just brought us some delicious Italian cookies <laughs> and we could not be more appreciative. They're delicious. I just had a rainbow and it was really the best rainbow cookie I'd ever had. Can you remind us where they're from? Yeah, they're from a bakery called Stella di Cecilia. It's a small family run bakery and best Italian cookies in town. Oh my God. So good. And <laughs> you mentioned when you came in that you don't like to show up empty handed, which I really connect with. Is that from like a family? I think it's definitely a Russian thing. Okay. Um, I, I don't know. I feel like no matter where we were going, even if it was a family member and it was super casual, we were kind of always taught like, you don't show up empty handed. And yeah. so it just stuck with me. Yeah. I feel the same way. I went to a, a dinner party the other night and I brought something that I was, you know, for, it was a potluck. And then I also brought some pussy willows and I love pussy willows, but then I realized it's kind of a funny thing to bring and be like, here, I brought you pussy willows. <laughs> Because you're saying pussy to your host, and there's no way around that being it's, slightly awkward. It's the thought that counts. It truly is, and they're love. They are make a lovely addition to any home. But really, that was really nice of you. So you're Russian, yes? Okay, and grew up in Long Island, yes? Well, technically Latvian Ukrainian, wow. uh, but my parents grew up in Soviet era, so wow. it was it was Russian. Wow, mom, you can uh, you're half Russian, correct? Yes, my my mother was grew up in Yugoslavia on the border of Hungary and Yugoslavia, but my father, his parents were from, uh, it's now Poland, but oh, okay. it was, I don't know, actually, I don't know the geography very well. <laughs> <laughs> Somewhere over there. Right. But you grew up in Long Island, so we yeah. share that because both Bobby and I grew up on Long Island. Not at the same time. She's significantly <laughs> older than me. <laughs> but no, so where'd you grow up in Long Island? Uh, so I grew up in Cedarhurst, which is in the five towns. Oh, yeah. Okay. Nice. Yeah. How do you feel like being an Islander affected you at, in terms of your food mentality? Because I personally have a lot of things that I connect with. Like, what are some of your, like, specifically Long Island food <laughs> memories? Uh, I think strongest for us are probably pizza mm. and bagels. Yeah. And then Italian cookies. Yeah, I totally. feel like those would probably be the most influential foods I think about for Long Island. Yeah. I also always feel like the two other things with Long Island, actually three, a good Greek diner. Oh, yeah. Right? Uh-huh. A good Greek diner, a good, like, regular diner. That's just, like, diner, diner. But I guess you find those kind of everywhere. But, like, you know, the chromed out, old kind of looking oh, yeah. diners. Uh, and a deli. Like, a good deli. It's funny. We didn't do the delis. Oh, really? We weren't huge deli people. Oh. Well, I shouldn't say that. We we did Russian delis, but we would drive to Brooklyn to go <gasps> to them. Yum. Tell us about a Russian deli. Yeah. Well, so, I don't know if you both are familiar with Brighton Beach. Yeah. But so... uh we used to go there like every week mm. and like I I think as a kid everything feels further than it is. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember feeling like it was like an actual journey that we were taking mm-hmm. yeah. um, which really I think it was just 30 minutes off the Bell Parkway. Yeah, that's cute uh, though. But so my wife and I, we still try and go as often as we can maybe every other week. Awesome. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. What's your go-to? Like what do you get? Uh, so they have these little uh, pitashki stands uh-huh. and so they're basically hot pastries filled with either sweet or savory fillings. Yeah. And so I introduced my wife, whose background is Irish, to something called a skapusam. Uh-huh. And it's basically sautéed sauerkraut and cabbage oh, yeah. inside, like, a hot fried pastry. Oh, my God. Let's okay, go let's now. go. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, we know what we're doing after the Actually, show. Actually, we wanted to go there together, and we never know where to go. So yeah. we'll have to. Oh, I have a whole list. Okay, okay. great. It's, Amazing. like, one of my favorite places, mm. and I, I love telling people where to go. Amazing. Mm-hmm. So what was the family structure like growing up? Uh, so... So I have, I always think I have a straightforward family, and then I start talking about it, and I'm like, it's not as straightforward mm-hmm. as I think it is. But uh, so it was in my house. It was my mom, it was my dad, and then it was my sister and I. My sister is a year older than me, um, and we had a Polish nanny. And so both my parents were working parents. And so when I was two years old, we had a nanny that came from Poland. And she never left. Um, so she stayed until I left for college. What was her name? Irena. Mm-hmm. And so I don't think that was the intention because uh, she came with the intention of only being around for a year. She ended up staying for 16. Yeah. Oh, man. That must have been a lot of love. 
Oh, my God. I think every time I misbehaved and she threatened to go back to Poland, I would just throw the biggest fit. That's, like, how she would get us to behave. Um, But, you know, she definitely – she was very important, and she became more of a grandmother than a nanny. Did she cook? She did. No one in my family cooked that great, but she cooked. Uh She had a couple of staple items. My mom definitely did not cook at all. We were a takeout family. Oh, yeah? Yeah. It's an interesting relationship. When you mentioned, and, you know, before we chatted today, we've chatted a little bit, and I got to know a little bit about you um, and some of your upbringing, and I was kind of honing in on the fact that you had this really close relationship with your nanny growing up, because it's not, you know, it's a unique relationship, right? Because you can form this, like, really strong kind of familial bond with someone who isn't your family, And in a way, I would think it allows you to get even closer because there's so much tension sometimes in families, even good family relationships. There's, you know what I mean? Like my mom and I, I mean, not you and I, but, you know, one's mom and I or dad. And there's all these kind of like little strenuous things, little cracks in the framework throughout life. And dynamics and whatever's going on. Exactly. But there's like this opportunity, I would think, and correct me if I'm wrong, and I want to know what you feel about this, about having a relationship with someone who is essentially a family member, but not. Well, so when I was younger, I don't think I understood that. Like I called her grandma. Mm -hmm. um, And I remember, like I'll always remember this day, but like I have another sister who may have a fraught relationship, but I remember... There's a day where she was like, she doesn't love you. She's paid to be here. Mm. And I was like, I don't understand that. Mm. And it's, I think it's hard for a kid to wrap their mind around the fact that someone's paid to care for them. Yeah, But you so, don't have to because it's in the heart. You knew what you felt in your heart. Exactly. And it was funny because it's like, even though what she said was hurtful, I remember not believing it. Like in my head, even as yeah. a kid, I was like, those words don't resonate with me and I remember going to Irena and just sobbing and I was like you're paid to be here and I remember she she, you know she broke it down and uh, what I loved about her is she kind of was no bullshit Um, she was very honest and we had so many just very honest conversations that I don't necessarily think a lot of adults have with children which Mm -hmm. I feel like have stayed with me after all these years but I remember she explained to me that yes she was paid but that the love was not a part of the contract. Yeah. And I kind of remember her telling me that. And mm. Yeah. They had such good chemistry together. You know, there's a concept for that in psychology, which is called the good mother. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't mean that your own mother isn't good. It just means there's some people that represent that. They represent the good mother. It can be a teacher or a wow. nanny or... I like that. Yeah. I do too, yeah. <laughs> and sometimes, actually, psychologically... When somebody doesn't have a good connection with their own mother, you could use that good mother. It, it, it provides nourishment yeah. even in thinking of them. And I'm sure when you think of her, That kind it of explains you. it really nicely. I love that. Yeah. That's really beautiful. Mm-hmm. So about five years ago, correct? Around five years ago, you mm-hmm. found out that she had passed away? Yeah, so when I left for college, at that point I was 18, and she'd already stuck around for so long, and she had a family of her own back in Poland, which I remember I feel like I tried to intentionally not think about too much because I was just kind of like, okay, she left her family, and then I was like, will she leave me? And it was like this weird connection, and then also I was like, if she left me, I'd miss her, and I was like, they'll miss her. But so I went to college, and I went to Buffalo, so I wasn't around anymore, and so she was like, okay, it's time to go back to Poland. Um, And so she did. And it was nice because I spent a couple of summers with her after that, going to visit her there. Oh, wow. Um, And I got to finally meet like this elusive family that I, you know, only kind of seen photos of and heard about. And I was so scared they wouldn't like me because I felt like I had taken her away from them. And they were so warm and welcoming. And it was, I don't know, it's, it was beautiful. That's so nice. That's amazing. Um, was but, it a part of the world where your f- own family was from, or was she from a different part? No, so she was from Poland. She mm-hmm. was from a town called Białystok, mm-hmm. um, which is about two and a half hours outside of Warsaw. Mm-hmm. Um, and my family's Latvian Ukrainian, right. which it's not too far, mm-hmm. but kind of different mentalities. Mm-hmm. It felt like different dispositions, uh, mm-hmm. where my family, I feel like, was just very kind of direct and not cold, but not necessarily warm and fuzzy. Her family was the opposite. And it was so almost like unnerving because they were so like physically affectionate. Mm. And I, I just kind of remember watching it one day having like family dinner. And my nanny's daughter-in-law had like two grown adult sons. And they were like sitting on her lap. And it sounds crazy, but I was just watching it. And I was like, 
holy shit. <laughs> I was like, this is perfectly normal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And like, yeah. it's just nice. Yeah, it's amazing to get to see inside other people's families and know what makes certain people the way they are. And it's it's always curious to me, the nature versus nurture yeah. kind of thing, you know? And even if you're explaining, like, your family wasn't physically affectionate and warm like that, and but seeing hers, there's obviously a piece of you that's, like, oh, yeah. compelled by it. And then, like, where do you fit in? Where do you then make your own traditions for your own family? And it's, it's kind of such, like, an interesting thing. Absolutely. And cultural differences. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. So also around – and then so – she, a couple of years passed by from this time when you go off to college, right? Like right. six years, seven yeah. years. Yeah, at that point. Yeah. Because uh, I was 25. Um, and it was in a convoluted way. Like they couldn't get a hold of me. We'd moved around. And uh, my wife and I had started like a food blog. Oh, wow. And so my nanny's granddaughter had like found me through the food blog and had sent an email to the food blog. Mm. And she was just like, I need you to call me. Mm. And I immediately lost my shit because I was like, it can't be anything else. I just mm. felt it. Yeah, those moments. And, you know, my wife, then girlfriend, um, she was just like, well, maybe it's something else. And I was like, it's not. Like, I just know yeah. it's not. And I just remember um, I tried calling, no one answered, and then I got the email, and she was just saying that it was too painful to talk about over the phone. And so she had died nine days prior. Mm. So, How did she die? um, Sleeping, which when I think about it, it was definitely maybe the most gentle way I could picture it. But she was 79, and she passed away sleeping. Mm. I'm so sorry. Thank you. So... Around the same time, you got some other news that was yeah. very difficult. Can you tell um, us a little bit about that? So it was really, it was kind of challenging because, you know, you're 25 and it's just like this weird age already because you're you're trying to be an adult. Yeah. You're not necessarily fully there yet. Right. It's a weird, it is a weird time. It's like a weird age. Yeah, absolutely. And it's like, I think there's so many expectations of yourself and from society and yeah. it's really kind of daunting to try and meet them all. Um, but around this time... My mother, who had been a bookkeeper for like 30 plus years at this company, um, she had been let go. And so at first I kind of thought it was a really good idea and I was excited for her because she'd worked so hard her whole life. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay. You know, she at this point sold the house we grew up in in Long Island. And your parents are divorced? They're divorced. And she like really hung on to that house for a long time because she kept thinking of it as something she would leave for my sister and I and it wasn't really something either of us wanted. We wanted her to have just kind of like an easy life where she didn't have to maintain this house. And she ended up getting an apartment in Forest Hills at okay. this point. How old was she at that then? 62 or 63. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't think she was that old, which I don't think is old. It is yeah. old. No. Right? Like, I don't think it is old. But so no. she was let go from her job. And so at first, my sister and I, we like threw her a party and we we're like, okay, well, now you can really enjoy your life. Mm. Um, and I was working as a barista at this point. I had worked in the food industry for a long time. And I was like, okay, I need a little break from from kitchens. Yeah. They get exhausting. I, I feel like we both can understand <laughs> that. Yeah. So I was like, okay, maybe a little like face-to-face interaction, make some coffee, like I'll yeah. take it easy. Um, and so at that point, it was probably a few months into her retirement where I just started noticing small things and they were really small at first. Like she wasn't really picking up the phone as often as she used to. Mm. Like she was a little harder to get a hold of. Um, she would misplace things, but you know, we all get forgetful. And then it just, the small things started kind of piling up and piling up. And my sister was living in either Austin or Chicago at this point. So she wasn't local. Mm. And I just remember calling her and I was like, something feels wrong. And like, couldn't really figure it out. And like, I kind of tried talking to my mom about it. And she was just like, I'm perfectly fine. Nothing's wrong. But she also started becoming antisocial at this point, Mm. which was really kind of odd for her because she'd always been a social butterfly Mm. um she loved dressing up and going out and she started just like sitting in her living room and just watching tv and Mm. just shutting everyone out and it was just very uncharacteristic for Mm. her yeah and so um i made an appointment to go see a doctor and so i took her with me and they didn't really take it seriously um 
they kind of dismissed it and they were like, well, it's just old age and that's what happens. And I was like, maybe thought it was depression or something. Right. Yeah. Which, you know, it's staggering also, sorry to interrupt, but how I was just reading something recently about how women, uh, are not often taken seriously at the doctor. They're sent home for chest pain. They're dismissed, especially by male doctors, but by other female doctors. Or if there's a male there, they'll talk to the male about the results of something instead of the female. I wish I didn't say it, but yeah, the last few yeah. years were very eye-opening for me yeah. and the healthcare system and just how it treats one women and two the elderly, mm-hmm. and it's really not the best. Yeah. Um, and honestly, I think it took a year of me taking her to doctors to finally have someone that even offered to give her a memory test. That's absurd. It was. It was crazy. <laughs> um, and also, like, I think my age played into it. Like, I was still at this point only 25. Right. And they kind of were like, well, what do you know? So they dismissed both of you. Exactly. What a te- I'm so sorry about that. That's, and I'm sure as the story progresses, you're going to let us know about a lot more ways in which this is yeah. a painful experience. But man, what a what a, uh, what a insult to injury. Yeah, you know? exactly. Because yeah. already you just, you know, I don't, I'm not the most intuitive person, but I feel like when I have a strong feeling, I try and listen to it. Yeah. And it's like, I knew something was wrong. Yeah. And it's like, listen, you know this person your whole life. Like, something doesn't feel right. I kind of feel like, trust that feeling. Yeah. So. So you kept kind of forging on with... Yeah, I so I ended up... And I found a really great GP for myself who I ended up then taking my mom to. And she was the first person that... Well, one, she was a woman. Mm-hmm. I, uh, at that point, I think just by chance, because of the specialties I was looking into, were mostly male-dominated. Mm. Um, this was the first female doctor I'd taken her to. And immediately she was just like, okay, well, let's like do all the tests mm-hmm. and let's give her a memory test. And she failed it mm-hmm. miserably. Yeah. Um, there was one portion of it where she just needed to replicate a hexagon. She needed to draw the hexagon. And I guess that was like the major tell. She like drew a line and a squiggle. Yeah. And she was like, there's obviously a mental deficit happening. And part, so part of the brain was right. Like, like she was like, something's not connecting. And she was the first person that finally like validated what I'd been feeling. And what was the conclusion that she drew? What was the diagnosis? So at that point, she was just like, your mom definitely has dementia, um, which is such a broad umbrella. Yeah. And early onset in her 60s. Exactly. Um, which unfortunately, another part of early onset is that the degradation happens much more rapidly. Mm. Um, and so from that point on, I think it was only a year from the diagnosis to my mom having to go into a nursing home. Oh my goodness, man. So, cause she couldn't take quick. care of herself and no. Mm-hmm. And I've talked about this for hours with my wife for like years now, but it's like the guilt I felt over that was awful Yeah, because trying to take a parent out of like their home yes. and telling them that they need to go. I know is like one of the most awful things I think anyone can do. I've been there, yeah, and I so really I. understand that. Like, the, it, it's hard to explain, and especially I was like, I think 27 at that point. Mm-hmm. I had gone through, like, home nurse care because mm-hmm. I did my best to try and keep her in the home because I didn't want to take her out of the home. How did you pay for that? Because that's part of the problem with home nursing. It's it's so expensive. And but there we isn't also, proper insurance for that. No, there isn't. And we got so lucky because my mom did end up selling that house oh. in Long Island. We were able to use that money to care for her. Right. It is really hard. I had the same experience with my dad. My dad had had cancer for 10 years and he was also just in terrible physical shape and could barely do anything for himself. And he <clears throat> had established all these kind of like hacks and tricks like backing out of the garage to get the mailbox, but like then he'd smash the side mirror off and, you know, reaching things with his cane. But eventually after too many times, he'd like pull off the cabinet and stuff like that. It was very clear to me that he also needed to leave the house and he Mm -hmm. was also running out of money. So, but had all these things in his house, like a pinball machine. And we used to fight (laughs) and I'd be like, get rid of this fucking pinball machine. You know what I mean? Really? Like, he's like, I like to have it when people come come over and but the sense of like pride and stuff it is. is so hard is telling mm-hmm. anyone, especially your parent, who like yeah. the the dynamic in that where then you become the adult so quickly yeah. and you're telling them what to do with their life it and feels their like stuff. Overnight. It's terrible. Yeah. It's so humiliating for everyone. And they're yeah. holding on with every ounce of yeah. strength to hold on to because they have so many losses. Totally. They've lost so many things along it's the way. So it's yeah. so hard yeah. for everyone. Yeah. 
Um, with my dad, I he ended up getting sick like two years ago and had to go to the hospital. And once that happened, we knew like he had to get rid of his dogs. He like had to, was going to have to go into a nursing home. And he just when that became a reality, he just died. He di- like yeah. actually one two years ago tomorrow, he just died. He was like no, you know I don't I've know. Heard a lot of stories like that too. Yeah. Yeah. Where, like, the will is just gone. Yeah, it's really, but well, I can... you fight, 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 and then, ah, uh, give yeah. up. Sometimes yeah. you just let go, but I really, like... Instead of change. Yeah. Change is hard. Change is, is change very is hard. hard. Yeah. Take bring on that. <laughs> but, man, like, that feeling, oh. that feeling of that responsibility and pressure, I mean, I really know that feels like, I think Bobby does, too. It's just, like, those times in life where you're like, I really don't want to do this. Mm-hmm. Like, this is not fair, it's funny because I feel like that was an expression I use so much. Yeah. And it's, you know, obviously everyone knows life isn't fair. Yeah. But when you feel like you've been so slighted. Yeah. Because uh, at this point, I had also gotten engaged and I was planning my wedding. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, this is fucking awful. Yeah. I'm like, I'm shopping for a wedding dress and putting my mom in a nursing home. Yeah. I was yeah. like, this is not how I pictured it. Yeah. And to like come to terms with the fact that this is your reality is probably something that took me the longest Mm -hmm. just because as much as maybe my mom was in denial I also was like well maybe it's not so bad yeah yeah but it's pretty bad yeah and just a statement about our country and healthcare again right here there is not anything that people can really afford that is a a viable option that is loving and caring and nurturing it's it's terrible. So what was yeah. the nursing home like that you had to put her in? So we got lucky to an extent. I found, um, so the fir- initially the first step was assisted living because she was still able to kind of function on her own, but she needed supervision because she would forget to eat. And at this point she'd lost a lot of weight, but she was still walking on her own and like communicating. Um, and I found a place that was like five minutes walking from my apartment. Oh, good. Mm. So it was super close. Yeah. Um, and we got her, like, her own bedroom with, like, a king-size bed. And so, like, nice. we decorated it and made it really cute. Um, I felt a little shitty because we, like, lied to get her into it. Like, I, like I, we, like, told her that, like, I don't know what we said, but we said that her apartment building was being evacuated and all the residents needed to find new homes. Oh. And that, like, we found her this, like, really cute new apartment that was closer yeah. to us so we would see her more. And so we, like, showed her this, like, room, and, like, at first she was super excited. And it was funny because she was doing, like, a happy dance. Uh And so uh, the director of the facility was, like, it's easier if you kind of leave now and let her get adjusted. And so uh, we did. Yeah. It's okay. We're all crying. (laughs) No, it's, Yeah. It's in, it's intense. It's well, I have a funny story to tell now, just for a little levity. So I did the same thing with my mom. We had to move her from Florida, move her up here, and you know she she didn't have Alzheimer's. Your mom had Alzheimer's. My mom had dementia, but it wasn't severe. So we um, got her into the assisted living. And the first night, my mom always loved the cocktail hour. She wasn't an alcoholic, but she loved the cocktail hour. It was, <laughs> she was famous love for it. Famous for it. Soda. So I brought her the first night to the assisted living. And she sat down with the group, and she wasn't a social person. She didn't really love groups of people. But she sat down the first night, and they had carafes of wine on the table. <laughs> she thought it was her glass. She took the entire carafe, brought it to herself, and said, this place is wonderful. <laughs> Just got hammered. I love that. Yeah, that's great. Um, <sighs> so what were you? But so, so we left her. we left her there to go home, because I knew that if I needed to come back, I could be there in a couple of minutes. Yeah. But it was really funny because so she called me maybe an hour after we left. She calls me. And this was this was her personality. And this is why I was laughing. She called me. She's like, something's a little off about this place. <laughs> and I was like, what do you mean? And she goes, there's so many old people. And she's like, why? And it's just like. <laughs> and it just made me laugh because I was mm-hmm. like, oh, she has no idea. Yeah. Because she was just kind of like the always like. Fun, lighthearted, really well dressed, like yeah. person. Yeah. And so she sees all these like old people walking around with walkers and canes, and right. she was just like, "Why'd you bring me here?" Yeah, <laughs> this is a weird choice. And yeah. I was just like, 
I was like, it's fine. I was like, just get to know them. And she was like, they're playing bingo. And I was like, <laughs> I was like, you don't need to play bingo. And I was like, I'm not. And I was like, okay, <laughs> you don't have to. But I guess what I'm wondering if you felt this way. When I did actually walk out of the building, I felt somewhat secure because I knew that there was a staff of people and that there was a support system there. I mean, that felt good. Yeah, I mean, so with the homemade, we could only afford to have her there for like maybe eight hours a day, which still sounds like a lot. Mm. But then I was like, okay, she's alone the rest of the time when I'm at work, and that was terrifying. So the security was there, but I think the guilt might have overshadowed it. So what do you mean by guilt? What does that mean to you? Um, I feel... Even though this facil- like the facility was nice, they're just not where you picture your parent being, and it's not where you want them to be. So that's disappointment, but how does it feel like guilt? Because I understand I had guilt too, but I have investigated that to really see what it means. The guilt probably felt like I couldn't take care of her. Like, I couldn't bring her home with me. That was a fact. Yeah. Uh, and we had a one-bedroom apartment, you know, and worked crazy hours, and, like, we didn't make a ton of money and so like logistically of course I knew that we couldn't take care of her but you know on an irrational level it just felt wrong like it felt wrong to leave her there because I was like well she wouldn't leave me somewhere I guess what it is I'd like to think that you know it was a disappointing situation but you were not a disappointment you sound like an amazing daughter yeah so much love thank you yeah (laughs) all in sweet yeah um at this point, where are you at in your cooking career? And also, like, are you cooking at home? Are you because you mentioned to me when we spoke before the podcast that um, you would cook like a bake growing up to kind of check, yeah. you know, take your brain offline. Where was this something that you were doing? <laughs> yeah, there was during a, this point, there was a lot of dessert baking. Yeah, um, and it's crazy, but I have a lot of food memories actually with my mom from this period of time which wasn't necessarily home cooking because she never really liked home cooking, yeah. but she liked to go out to eat. Mm. Um, and another weird aspect of dementia is that people's taste buds change mm. and like flavor preferences change, which I wasn't really expecting. Um, but she kind of, uh, my mom had been a health nut her whole life and like was always dieting. Yeah, She was just always like trying to lose weight and just kind of very cautious about what she ate. And I felt like all of those, like, restrictions and rules went out the window. Wow. And so going out to eat was just a lot more fun now. Yeah. Uh, and so I just have a lot of memories of these, like, indulgent meals with her. Can you tell us about one in particular? Yeah. It's probably my favorite, actually, of all of them. But uh, so she, she did eventually end up having a great team of all female doctors nice. at Mount Sinai. Nice. Um, and I kind of made it that way because they were more compassionate and they were less dismissive. Yeah. And that combination worked for us. Mm-hmm. Um, but at some point, a couple of years into her diagnosis, she was told that she needed to have a hysterectomy. And so for me, I was like, oh, shit. Yeah. Like, that's not, it's not great. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, it was kind of cute. Like, she didn't really, like... My mom didn't really understand what that meant, uh, yeah. but she could kind of read the atmosphere in the room and she could read the vibe. And so I could see that she looked concerned and I didn't want her to be. It's kind of like when you have a kid and you're trying to like, you know, yeah. shit's going down, but you don't want them to know yeah. that. So you're just trying to be lighthearted. So we left the hospital. We had made an appointment to go back to get the surgery and we had the rest of the afternoon. And so I kind of was like, okay, I was like, what do you want to do with the rest of the day? And she just looked at me and she's like, I want to have a really nice lunch. Mm. And I was like, okay. And so this was like up in Midtown by like Columbus Circle area. And so it was like 1130 in the morning and a place called Quality Meats was open. Mm -hmm. So we roll in at like 1145. We're both kind of dressed in sweats, like not really (laughs) very presentable. Uh, And it's just dudes in business suits, like definitely having corporate lunches. And my mom and I sit down and I was like, what do you want? And she's like, I want a really nice glass of Merlot. (laughs) I was like, okay. So we ordered a bottle of Merlot (laughs) and the server comes over and it was really funny, but I feel like at this point I just kind of gotten used to like 
patronizing men, but it was funny. He, we're at a steakhouse, and he asked if we wanted to hear the fist special. And I was like, no, we don't want to hear about the fucking fist special. Exactly. <laughs> and so we got the porterhouse for two with a side of fries. That's and awesome. we got the bottle of wine, and then we finished with ice cream sundaes. That's that is amazing. wonderful. And it just felt good. Uh, uh, yeah. And, like, I feel like we sat there for hours, and we ate this lunch, and... She was happy, and I was yeah. happy, and it yeah. just kind of felt like we were, like, in this little cocoon. Yeah. Sarah and I talk about this a lot. We talk about, we learned it from my mom, who was a Holocaust survivor, and somehow could celebrate life. She had lost a daughter, and despite all her losses, she had an ability to just celebrate in the moment. And that's what you guys did. It was such a beautiful moment in the face of difficulties you were celebrating together and sharing together. And I feel like I learned that from her. Because both my parents grew up in, like, the Soviet Union, and they were both, um, they both also came from Holocaust-surviving families. Mm. And so I feel like there was a lot of despair and kind of a dark history, and no one ever talked about it. Like, Mm. it was kind of like this unspoken rule, but never really talked about these things. But somehow, like, life just felt like it was meant for celebrating. Mm. Yeah. And I loved it. That's, I mean, it's, it's also just like the small, it feels like when you were talking about that, I was just kept thinking like small victories, you know, in the times of like the hardest hardship, like the little wins, you know, like yeah. the little special times you carve out that you weren't expecting to. And in fact, I feel like those times you can never necessarily expect to, it is the, like rolling up in your sweatpants to be like, well, what do you want to do? Like, well, let's do something special. Yeah. Yeah. And those times turn out to be these profound, like, you know, pillars that you can look back and laugh on or look back and feel good about. And, you know, just the little, the little wins. I think it's called resilience. I think that's part of what resilience is. Yeah. It's being able to like, just dig in and find, and flowers grow and blossom. And yeah, it's the flowers growing out of the cracks. Well, let's take a small break. And when we come back, we're going to have some more with Jess. Patina Restaurant Group offers unparalleled service in New York's most iconic locations, including Lincoln Center and Macy's Herald Square. Patina is also the exclusive caterer at Brooklyn Botanic Garden. From meetings and presentations in the glass-walled atrium to galas in the renovated palm house and intimate wedding showers at Yellow Magnolia Cafe, your event will be perfectly imagined and customized at Brooklyn Botanic Garden. You can also enjoy brunch and lunch at the picturesque Yellow Magnolia Cafe overlooking Lily Pool Terrace. Executive chef Sarah Flynn's unique menu includes modern dishes with global flavors with a focus on local and seasonal ingredients. And we're back with Jess Quinn. Jess, we were talking before we took a break about small victories and we were talking about your mom's battle with dementia. Um, So as this progresses, um, just like take us there, if you don't mind, just through kind of maybe the latter half of the, there was a five year from diagnosis to to her death. Um, What was it like kind of in the later stages for you? The later stages are probably the hardest ones. Um, I think, It's hard to describe, but I think the thing with dementia is people don't want to talk about it. And I really didn't want to share Mm. my story with people either. Um, I felt very kind of protective of that aspect of my life because I didn't think my peers could understand. Yeah. And the few times I feel like I did try talking about it, the way they related almost made me furious. It's, really? Like how? Yeah. Well, I think a common thing is like, oh, yeah, well, you know, my, my grandmother had dementia or right. like my grandfather had dementia. And it's, it feels, I don't know how to describe it because the intention behind them trying to relate is obviously a good one. They want to be able to relate to you. But at the same time, here you are like in your late 20s right. taking care of a parent. There's no roadmap. You have no idea yeah. what you're doing. Yeah. You're not established. You're not like in your 50s mm-hmm. where I feel like yeah. that is a more, I don't want to say appropriate, but maybe a more yeah. common age well, that you're taking care of it's a parent. A tra- it's a traumatizing experience what you went through. <laughs> you know, it really is. It's traumatizing. It's, yeah. it's hard at any age, but you were absolutely right. You were at a time of growing your life and you probably wanted to focus on your life. Yeah. And you really had to pay so much of your attention towards your mom and her needs. And it wasn't even that as much as I wanted her to be a part of it. Mm-hmm. Like, I just felt like 
all of these moments came up and like she wasn't present in the way I wanted her to be. And so I think I felt a lot of rage and like, I think probably anger and frustration are the most probably strong feelings that I felt at the time because I had just gotten married and then, you know, it, everyone like kept asking about my mom every time we went to like see someone about like a cake or a wedding dress. And it was really funny, but so I actually had a Hungarian seamstress, um, my last uh, wedding dress fitting, I went by myself. I didn't want anyone to go with me. And it was just me and this, like, Hungarian seamstress. And I remember <laughs> she just, like, kept patting my butt <laughs> and kept telling me that I looked great. Aww. And I was like, I'm just going to pretend you're my mom. I was Aww. like, it's fine. <laughs> That's so tender and so sweet. And, you know, you're, what you're describing, like, with chronic illness, it, pieces are lost all the time. There's pieces of her mm-hmm. yeah. that were lost. It's interesting. I think that we live, you know, the the way people kind of do talk about grief, the very limited ways in which people talk about grief and death in our society, I think, is that often there's a conversation of, well, uh, if I was going to lose someone, I'd want to lose them this way. Or if I'm going to die, I would want to die this way. I'd want to mm-hmm. die instantly. Or I'd want, my, my, I'd want the person I love. You know, it's something that people talk about. And I think it's so interesting because the freak accident the like instant loss of someone is so traumatic and painful for one reason because you never get a chance to say goodbye but I can speak from personal experience and I'm wondering if you agree that the losing somebody over an extended period of time is you do get to say goodbye you do get to try to wrap your head around it but you're so traumatized countless for such a losses long time. over and over again it's it is funny because a lot of people once again, well-intentioned, yeah. you know, they were like, well, it must have been easier because you had time to prepare. Right. Um, I don't know if I agree with that. Yeah. Uh, because by the time my mom did pass, at that point, I would kind of wanted her to die at that point that's for the at least two years. 100%. I felt and the I same And I think that's the dad. part where you're just like, holy shit, I'm a terrible person. Right. Then you're like, I want my parent to die? What a monster. Remember. And I would say it. Yeah. Like, I sometimes, I feel like I would just have to say it out loud because I was like, it felt like a dirty thought yeah. that I yeah. would need to like put it out and just say it. it, it like, I talk about the word and a lot, the duality that we have. Mm-hmm. So, of course, you loved her. You wanted to have every bit, bit of her and... It was so difficult to watch her decline yeah. for, for her, for yeah. you, for everybody. I have a little story to tell here that's very descriptive. Yeah. Um, I ran many bereavement support groups, and I was running a bereavement support group for mothers, parents. And it was the first day, and in the first day, everybody describes their story. And the first person said, um, you know, my son died in a car accident, and it was sudden, and I didn't get to say goodbye. And, of course, it was the first day, so they're filled with emotion. Yeah. And the person next to her was glaring glaring at her and I didn't know why I couldn't understand it she said my son was sick for 30 years he had muscular dystrophy he mm. died a thousand times I watched every time mm. he almost died I felt it and they started to fight with each other the two of them it was worse for me it was worse for me and the whole group we got it in that moment it just fucking sucks that's yeah. it there's no other way around it no yeah. matter what a way there's no comparison but each one has its own aspects yeah and what you've been describing is the drip, drip, drip of loss yeah. for five years. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it feels like someone is chipping away at the person you know and the life that you had with them over this extended period of time, and you're just grasping for whatever you can. But I also feel like this period of time could be described as panic mm. because every time I got a missed call or the phone went off or anything, I felt like I was <clears throat> constantly ready to run yeah. into action. Yeah, mm-hmm. I was like, I'm in a war. I'm fighting yeah. this battle. Hypervigilant. And, I, and it's like, I also feel like I just turned off my feelings at this point because I was like, if I let myself feel what's actually happening, I was like, I'm not going to actually be able to be, you know, the person or the advocate that she needs me to be for her because the last two years were definitely the worst. I mean, at that point, she went into a full-time uh, nursing care mm-hmm. She couldn't feed herself. Like, yeah. she couldn't eat solid food, you know. And, you know, I hated saying it, but sometimes I would show up and I would look at her and I would just be like, I hate you. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, it feels like... Those are real uh, feelings. It feels like Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Yeah. I was like, you sort of look like my mom. At that mm-hmm. point, even physically, she didn't look like my mom. Yeah. And I was mm-hmm. like, 
Like, who are you? Yeah. Like, yeah. you look at this person, you don't recognize them, and then you're like, I don't like the person I am with you because yes. you're like, this isn't a very nice person. Totally. There's so much anger there. I felt the same thing when my dad was dying. I just remember, uh, especially at the very end when he was in the hospital for like a month or so, I remember being furious. And then looking back on that, I'm like, man, I wish I wasn't so furious. But then after, like, then going back again, I'm like, it's okay. Yeah. You are allowed to be furious. This is an enraging situation. You're it's, alone. You're, yeah, right. Like, similarly, I mean, you know, for the most part, pretty alone. And uh, I think that it's reasonable. And I hope that people who are listening out there, like, know that they're not alone in feeling like a gamut of emotions. Absolutely. One of which is rage. And another one is, which is wanting somebody to die. Mm-hmm. Who okay. you love. What a, And what a complicated mind fuck it's that so is complicated yeah. yeah so i'd like to address the anger i've been yeah. thinking about that a lot this week when the clients that i've seen a lot of people were bringing up anger for different reasons whether it was sudden loss or what you're describing the feeling is not the problem it's what do we do with it yeah so when you look back now and you experience that anger what did you do with it um <clears throat> I did a lot of running. Okay. Mm. <laughs> Actual running, physically Yeah, running. I picked good. up running. Yeah, like um, Forrest Gump, who ran yeah, for three years. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it felt good, and it felt like uh, I was kind of able to run my rage it's out. It's externalizing mm. the energy. Yeah, and just sweating and maybe turning my mind off a little bit. Yeah. Um, Imagine if you were turning that in and not out. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's definitely a lot of, like, unhealthy lashing out of people mm-hmm. and, like, kind yeah. of shutting myself out. You know, my wife was always like, I'll come and visit her with you. And uh, it's, I didn't want my mom to lose her dignity. Mm. And I had a hard time letting people come and go and see her with me. And mm. so it's a very small group. It was just my best friend for like my whole life who could come with me and my wife. Yeah. Um, because you're carrying you know, your mom's dignity. Yeah, because I just knew, I knew that if she could see herself, I knew that she would be like, fuck no. Yeah. Like people are feeding me, they're changing me, they're yeah. bathing me. And like she would have been horrified. And like so much of kind of who she was was like the image that she portrayed. Yeah. And I was just like, she would be just devastated. Yeah. You know, and, as you talk, the truth is, is that she wasn't probably feeling it as much as you were because parts of her brain had shut down. You were feeling it for her. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely, because I knew, like, I knew how she would feel. Yeah. I just remember there's a day kind of towards the end, I think it was the last few months, because everyone kept preparing us, and that's another thing. Everyone's like, okay, well, it's definitely happening now. And then you're like, when? Yeah, the <laughs> you're waiting. You're literally waiting for the when. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then you rationalize it, and you're like, okay, well, how many times I Googled when is it normal to die after diagnosis is so crazy. Yeah. yeah. Because like no one can actually tell you. Exactly. But you're like, okay, if I have like a date. Yeah. You're like, maybe it won't exactly. hurt as bad, I guess. A little story about that. When my father was dying, I remember he was in Florida and I was going onto a plane and I had one foot on and one foot off and I didn't know which way to go. I didn't know whether mm-hmm. to stay or to go. It was just this strange yeah, it's moment. A, it's, it's a really tough time. Yeah. So when when was it? When did it actually happen? So... In March, um, she ended up having a bad case of pneumonia. Mm -hmm. And, like, I got the phone call. And the thing is, I'd gotten the phone call so many times. So I was, like, I mean, obviously I was concerned, but I was just, like, okay, well, it's just another hiccup. Because, you know, delusions. But I went and I saw her and not great. Like, looked awful. But so... Lucky, lucky enough, um, we, we, I took her and found a lawyer, like, at the very beginning of this process. She didn't have a will. She didn't mm-hmm. have the health proxy or any of that. So we got all of that paperwork sorted. And we went down the list about DNR and, like, what do you want? What don't you want? She was like, I don't want anything. Mm. She was like, if I'm not, like, eating and breathing on my own, she was like, leave me alone. And so at this point, she was hooked up to all the monitors, and she had an IV with the antibiotics for the pneumonia, and then she had an IV for the fluids. And so I, like, came to this road where I called my sister, and I just remember crying. And I was like, okay, I was like, I think this is really it. And she was like, how do you know? And I was like, I was like, because I'm disconnecting her from the IVs. Mm. And... Mm. 
Sorry. <laughs> no, you don't need to be sorry. It's just um, time. How brave. Yeah. So we yeah. disconnected her from the IVs, and I remember the woman came over uh, with the sheets to fill everything out, and I remember signing it, and I felt like I was killing her. Yeah. But you know in your logical mind that she had been dying all along. And I knew. And I was this like, was... at this point, I was like, there's nothing to salvage. She wouldn't want to live like this, but like this was probably the first time where it really felt concrete. Yeah. Um, so we disconnected her from the IVs, and she passed away 48 hours later. Mm. Yeah. Did she have hospice care, or it was in the nursing home? It was in the nursing yeah. home because they um, at that it was nice because the nursing home offered the hospice care, so yes, everything exactly. was kind of taken care of there. Yeah. yeah. And you know, having I don't know if you saw that I, I had worked in hospice for 12 years. No, so, I didn't know that. So I, I really do understand the grace of making those kinds of decisions, how, how hard they are, but it's such grace, you know, that you carried, and for her. Yeah. Were you working at this time? Yeah. Um, so at this point, we were living in the Finger Lakes, and so oh. I'd, come, I'd come down mm. um, to kind of get, well, I came down for a job interview. <laughs> uh. We wanted to move back down to Brooklyn at this point. And I got the phone call when I was on the job interview. And so mm. it was also the craziest thing because here I am on this, like, really big, important job interview. And then I need to go disconnect my mom's IVs. And I was yeah. like, Ugh. I was like, doesn't get easier. Yeah, if that's a face smush in the mud moment. And you're just kind of <laughs> like, what the fuck's happening? Yeah, yeah. And you're like, terrible. None of this is normal. <sighs> I do remember, though, when I signed the paperwork to have the IVs disconnected, this one woman, and I'll never forget it, I think she meant a kindness, but I remember I was crying, like, so hard, and she, like, patted me on the back, and she goes, don't worry. She goes, she might survive a few more months, and I was like... Oh, God. I was like, why would you say that? Yeah. People say the weirdest things at all. I, I remember, I mean, this wasn't after a death, but I was in a really, really bad accident when I was 21. I was in a bus that went off a cliff oh, God. and my whole hand became like ripped apart and like mangled. And I remember going into the hospital like in the middle of the night and this like attending doctor comes over and he was like, we were in the middle of nowhere. And he comes over and goes, don't worry, you can get along just fine with just a couple fingers. And he only had like one finger. And I was like, this is not comforting. You was, realize that life is just a series of nightmares that you have to laugh at. Absolutely. Uh-huh. It's, I actually, there was this guy that I used to um, kind of follow. That makes me sound like I'm in a cult, but he's a, <laughs> he was just like a, his, he, he was like a, dar- he gave Dharma talks and he would talk about um, pop-ups in horror land is what he would call them. Mm-hmm. So it'd be like when you're on a, um, like a haunted house mm-hmm. ride and all of a sudden something like springs up. It's like, ah, it's like, and then the rest of the ride is kind of smooth and it's like, ah, and it's about your reaction and like, what do you do? Do you tense up and freeze up? Do you like true. face it? Do you realize that it's like, you're going to get past, it's probably not going to kill you. You know, yeah. that's very powerful. Yeah. What you just said that's yeah. kind of what I talk about it's, all day. It's interesting. I also think of Andy Warhol and his painting with heaven and hell. Mm. You know, it's both. Yeah. This life is heaven and hell. Yeah. yeah. Whatever that means. So a lot of folks who come on talk about, uh, post when somebody dies, the things that, you know, folks will try to bring them food wise. Like, did people reach out to you with bringing food to you or trying to do stuff like that? Um, a lot of people reached out. I was not the quickest to respond. Mm. Um, I was also in the middle of planning a funeral. Yeah. And once again, Google, just everything's Google. I was like, we don't really have anyone to like talk to. And uh, my sister had to fly in from out of town. And yeah. my cousin came in from out of town. And uh, we, we kind of all convened in this like hotel in like downtown Manhattan. Um, and it was nice because everyone kind of left it up to me. They're like, what do you want to do? Um, I already knew that I was going to cremate my mom. And I found a place that like I wanted them to do it. But I also knew that I didn't want a funeral. I yeah. was like, that woman spent her whole life celebrating and enjoying life. I was like, it seems very counterintuitive to have a funeral yeah. and have a somber event. Uh, and so we made a reservation at a Russian restaurant okay. in Brighton. Wow. Uh, I told everyone to get dressed up and look the best that they could. Uh, we had countless bottles of wine and liquor. Yeah. And just giant Russian banquet style. Um, And everyone just kind of ate and drank leisurely all afternoon and went around the table just 
telling stories about her. Yeah. Um, you are very intuitive. You said you weren't intuitive before. You are master in intuition. Yeah. yeah. I just feel like I knew her. Yeah. Which is a good feeling because I hear a lot of people feel like they don't really know their parents. Mm. Um, and I feel like I really knew her. Um, but it was funny because the thing that kept popping up um, was almost every story was about food. Yeah. <laughs> and it made me feel so good because I was like, she really was as generous as I think she was. And so all the stories were like, I remember Sunday morning bagels at your house. Or I remember that when your mom ordered Chinese food, it was like 20 egg rolls for three people. (laughs) And it's like the biggest offense to her would have been that someone came to her home and they left hungry. That is just lovely. And I love that. Yeah. There's a lot of crying, but it it felt like good crying. Yeah, there is good crying in there. my, My business name is bittersweet. I love that word. I, I do too. Sweet, yeah. And this was sweet bitter. Yeah. This yeah. was so sweet. I don't know. And then it was cute. We all uh, oh. we all took pictures at sunset on the boardwalk afterwards. Oh. And oh. I don't know. And um, the ocean was there. Yeah. I don't know. It felt like if we were gonna say not goodbye, I hate saying goodbye, but if we were gonna celebrate her life, I don't think that we could have done it in a in a better way. Yeah. 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 Um, so you're coming up on the one year. Almost, yeah. What yeah. date is that? Uh, March 14th, because my best friend knew I needed some comic relief, and she said, well, great. She's like, your mom fucked up Pi Day for you. <laughs> What's that Pi National Pi? 3.14. Oh, 3.14, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Do you have, do you feel affected by the looming, like, date approaching at all? I know when my dad died, the year one was very, for me, I was just like, Okay, it's gonna be a year. It's gonna be a year. Like, not that I thought I would be devastated or not devastated. I just kept thinking. But is it is the one year meaningful to you in um, either way? It wasn't. I don't know. I feel like that wasn't as much as her birthday was a few months after she passed, mm. and that was kind of hard for me because I was just at work, and then suddenly it hit me. Yeah, and like. I've told my sister the most embarrassing thing is that you don't know when the grief is going to strike. Yes. And normally it's in public and it's embarrassing and messy. Yeah. Um, but her birthday and actually my birthday. Uh, um, yeah. I had my birthday and it was beautiful and it was great and I had my friends and I just turned to Trina, my wife, and I was like, this is the first birthday I have mm-hmm. ever had where she's like not on the planet. Yeah. And that's hard. It's really hard. But yeah. she is clearly in your heart. Big time. Woof. Um. When is your birthday? It's in August. Okay, just so we <laughs> send, your, send you a card. It's in August, vibes. August 20th. I'm a, I'm a Leo, okay. which through and through. Yeah. Um, but also, I think probably the hardest about post-death for me is that this has probably been for me the most kind of just big year of growth and career for me that I've ever had. Tell us about that. What is your work? Um, so I'm the pastry chef of a restaurant in Manhattan called Rosadora. And so we opened, uh, I think like a month after she passed. Wow. I got the job two weeks after she passed. So you got the job. I got the job. <sighs> I got the job. I accepted the job. And we were back and living in New York maybe like six weeks after this entire thing. You had so many changes all at once. So many. And I just went right into it. Uh, but so it, sa- it doesn't sound... Sounds gross, but we had we had a New York Times review and we oh. got three stars. And my mom always read the New York Times. Oh, and amazing. we got our three stars, and I was just like, "Well, shit." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was like, she would be so proud. Do you talk to her? Uh, so her her urn <laughs> sits in our living room, and uh, a lot talk to her a lot. Yeah. Funny enough, also my wife does, which oh, I really love. I, I love think it's that. really cute. But sometimes amazing. something good will happen, and she'll be like, "Emma, did you hear?" <laughs> oh, that's so sweet. Yeah, and that's so amazing. I mean, she's my wife has been amazing. Um, I laugh about it, but so um, I decided actually to propose to her right in the middle of the whole diagnosis and everything because she just showed up. Yeah. Um, we were in our 20s and we were just dating and, you know, people don't really owe you anything. And she didn't owe me anything at that point. And when my mom was sick, if I was at work or whatever it was, I remember there was a day 
<clears throat> I called her and I was like, what are you doing? She's like, I'm just hanging out with Emma. She's <laughs> like, I she's like, I brought her some food and Tupperwares uh, and I just like lost it. It's a litmus <laughs> test. And I just started. Yeah. It's a really good one. Yeah. I mean, yeah. people can definitely be there for the good times, but yeah. if we're talking about bad times, I don't know if it gets worse than this. And your yeah. mom got to know Absolutely. her. It's beautiful. Well, she it was, knew your mom. It was funny because I think their relationship got better as like this diagnosis went on because I think my mom became a little just sweeter yeah. like as a person Soft, she became, softer she became softer yeah. Yeah. um you know I came out to her when I was 19 as being a gay woman and I just kind of remember like she was not thrilled about it mm. and then somehow later she was just like oh that's not important at all yeah and like well love Trina it breaks her. down right like you're as your own mortality comes into play you know what I mean you kind of hopefully at some point can think about the things that really matter you know yeah um I have a question that we like to ask folks on the show which is uh if you had a piece of advice to give yourself in the beginning of this process having been through it now and you could kind of like meet your earlier self and tell yourself something what would it be (laughs) it's a good question (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think ask for help. Mm. Um, I think I took on too much and I think I was scared to tell people or embarrassed yeah. because asking for help's not really in my nature. Yeah. Um, but I think that I wish I let more people in and I didn't isolate myself as much because I think that I would have been a better advocate and caretaker for my mom yeah. if I didn't feel so overwhelmed all the time mm. in my solitude. Good yeah. advice. It sounds like you felt like you had to soldier up. And if you soldiered up, then you couldn't ask for help. But yeah. again, duality. Maybe we can do both. That's yeah. wonderful advice to give people. Yeah. This was an amazing talk. Thank and you so much just, for having of me. Of course. And <laughs> just thank you so much for coming on because it requires such an intense amount of vulnerability. And, you know, the goal is in sharing these stories that, like, someone else who hears us, you know, even if they're not going through exactly the same thing, just remembering that we... I don't know. It becomes very dark sometimes when you're in these kinds of experiences and it doesn't have to even be an experience where someone's dying. I mean, like there's all times in life when you get your heart deeply broken and you feel alone. And I think that like hearing somebody be able to be like, Hey, I was there. I went through this. I had a dark thought. I had Mm -hmm. a dark time. I like never thought I'd get up from the floor. It just, it's so important to other helping other people. And it's just really kind of you and really generous, really generous of you. So thank you so much for coming and talking to us. Thank you so much. Yeah, You have a big, beautiful heart, and that's what helps (laughs) us get through difficult things. so nice to meet you, and thank you also so much for the cookies. They're delicious. I was so happy to be here. Yeah, thank you. Could we? Could you take us to Brighton Beach sometimes? <laughs> yeah, anytime. We would love to do that. Anytime. anytime. <laughs> we don't just want recommendations. We want to go with you. Yeah, I would love to. Okay, cool. <laughs> Thanks, Jess. Hey, Bobby. I hope you guys enjoyed our uh, interview with Jessica Quinn, who is amazing. Jess. Um, We really had a great time talking to her. She was wonderful. We laughed. We cried. We ate rainbow cookies. Yes. Which is what I wanted to talk about. So rainbow cookies are amongst my favorite cookie. And they're a divisive cookie. Some might even say a small cake. Um, And some people don't like them. They have a lot of almond paste in them. It's like almond, raspberry, chocolate, um, and I think even just the colors can be triggering to people's sense of like, oh, I don't like that. Or opposite. And be like, oh, I love rainbow cookies. Where do you fall on the rainbow cookie spectrum? Well, I had never eaten one. I had seen many, many, many. In my I hu- somehow my don't husband's, believe you. My husband's family, they bake every year for Christmas. And you never tried and, one? Yep, I was never attracted Poor to the green and red until the other day we were in Cobble Hill and you took me to... Caputo's, right? Is Caputo's, yeah. Caputo's. They have a good one. And I tasted it for the first time, and I love the almond paste. It was actually delicious. Yeah, and when yeah. we, you had one when we were here, didn't you? Or did you nope. have a different kind? I don't like them. <laughs> you until, do I never, like them. I never had one until Caputo's. Okay, so you didn't yes. have the one no. when Jess was here. No. Big mistake. Those might have even been better than the Caputo's. Mm. They were very delicious. I will learn from my mistakes. Yeah, please. Please come back next time <laughs> with all your mistakes fixed. All right, Bobby? <laughs> Um, 
another thing we chat a lot about was uh, Russian food and Brighton Beach. And after Jess came on and chatted with us, I took myself on a little unguided uh, trip of Brighton Beach. I should have reached out to her, and I will probably next time. But I just kind of woke up one morning feeling really inspired to go, so there wasn't much planning involved. Um, and I had a great time. I went to the Brighton Bazaar supermarket, which is the supermarket that's full of every kind of Russian food, sausages and salamis, and I guess they don't call it salami, but cured meats. Right. Um, lots of jarred things, pickled fishes and smoked fishes and uh, cabbage. I'm going to name every food <laughs> available in life. Um, but I, it was really cool. And then I went and took myself out for a little uh, lunch with some dumplings, of which I do not how, know how to pronounce the name, so I'm not going to butcher it, but tiny, almost like baby pierogies. Mm-hmm. What's your feeling about Russian food? I know you love it. Well, I happen to love Russian food. My father was Russian. Yeah. And I remember him having borscht. There was always borscht in the cold house. Cold or hot? He didn't make it. He would buy it. Okay. I uh, can't remember the brand. But cold he, or hot? Cold. Okay. Cold with a dollop of sour cream on yeah, top. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, and stroganoff. Mm. I always love Russian food. Yeah, me too. Yeah. I really love it too. So then I bought some of these little dumplings to bring home frozen from the restaurant because I sold them. Uh, and my good friend Danny came over and Danny and I, uh, I made us some borscht, but I made hot borscht right. that had beef in it. And I put in red cabbage, beets, cherry tomatoes. Um, what else? Some other wacky things. Oh, I put cilantro in it and dill because I there's... Um, an area where China and Russia meet and mm-hmm. you find a lot of this chi- like delicious Chinese food that has a little bit of like a Russian influence. Yeah. And then even in that area in Brighton Beach, there's Korean, Russian restaurants. So, so I was like, cilantro is a natural to put into this borscht. I put it in, it was like awesome. Wow, cool. Tons of dill, red onions, basically anything red I could find. I think I put some like yeah. radishes in there, uh, some red potatoes. Um, it was really good. And then I made the dumplings on the side and I put just like butter and then a little sour cream on top. And then because I'm a a part of an Italian (laughs) and part Russian, I put pecorino cheese (laughs) because every dumpling somewhere is kind of the same. Right. That is true. But I loved it. And I 